Hello, and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. This is episode 46, Lord of War from 2005. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Joey Lewandowski, and with us today, returning guest, Zach Dazan, back from The Family Man. No longer talking about Christmas today, we are talking about the international gun trade. So hello, Zach. Hello. This is kind of a different movie than the last one we talked about, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> at least in quality. I, I will say I had the opposite experience I did with Family Man. I had a note here in the beginning when I started watching this movie. I think I'm really going to like this. And then by the end, I was very angry at it, which is the opposite is what happened to me with Family Man. I don't want to bash this movie off the bat, but it's not my favorite Cage Club movie we've done. I think if you watch this movie on mute, it would be a more enjoyable experience <laughs> because it is beautiful to look at. Like, there's all these vivid colors. The camera work is kind of cool. The actual visual production of this movie i think is tremendous Gorgeous. it's just the script that is kind of like a clunker overloaded with voiceover and i think it's kind of funny that we're so close or so quickly after adaptation where they talk about how bad voiceover is yes it seems like the whole first 20 minutes is voiceover yeah it's a total uh, wholesale goodfellas ripoff i will say one of the very positive things that just, uh, came out of this is i i'd never seen goodfellas but i'd seen enough cultural references to it simpsons community etc to know all the beats of it and i was watching this sure. and like and in the first like 20 minutes I was like this is just goodfellas like, um and so i actually I stopped watching it uh, and i watched goodfellas so which was a great movie but yeah like he might as well have started saying off started off saying you know as long as i can remember, i've always wanted to be a gun runner and uh, it, it was it bothered me this movie is highly stylized and very kind of overbearing that's how i felt about it like at the beginning i was like oh this is cool this is a good way to start the film and then it just didn't really stop and there aren't exactly a lot of completely full scenes you know i mean if it feels like a really long montage and it does feel like it's aping goodfellas and casino and things like that but you know those movies flow a lot better i think because they take place in a sort of like a small environment and never really leaves the casino you never really leave the street that henry lives on yeah and then this goes like around the world after a while i, I had kind of trouble kind of not like keeping up this is even the second time i've seen it kind of like a little more the first time but yeah i just did feel it sort of bearing down on me like the entire movie and just almost relentless the montage uh, line that, that's actually a really interesting way to think about it because yeah just like in a montage where you don't see how someone gets to a certain point necessarily i, I very much felt like there is a lot of missing pieces into how he became as successful as he was one time he's just selling an uzi to some random people in a thing and now he's suddenly selling to warlords it didn't feel like it was that well explained I kind of felt like the the voiceover, it, it would have been better if maybe he, he talked to the camera more often and broke <laughs> it up a little bit, you know, and sort of, because the movie is kind of like highly unbelievable to begin with for someone like me who just has no idea what international gun running means, you know, what that right. entails and stuff. So it could have been just a little more to like get me into the movie a bit more. Or it could have just been a, another way for me to get more into the film. The movie opens up with Cage talking to the camera and it's pretty cool. I mean, it's... I was going back and forth between whether it's grown-worthy or cool that he just turns the camera and sets up the movie, and I think it kind of works. There are over 550 million firearms in worldwide circulation. That's one firearm for every 12 people on the planet. The only question is... How do we arm the other 11? The problem I was having with the movie on a whole, and I wasn't able to describe it until you guys started talking about it, was that it almost feels like a biopic, 
where it's following this guy's life and trying to cram in so much yeah. of the story mm. that if they had just focused on his events in one country, like there's so much at the second half of the movie sort of seems like it's mostly him and the Liberians. Like if that was the entire thread of the movie, yeah. I think it would have been more coherent and a better thing. But instead, the first half of the movie, he's bouncing around through the decade or like through the 80s into the 90s into Europe and Africa and all these other places. There's just too much going on. And while we do get to meet Weston Cage, Nicolas Cage's son in the Ukraine, and that's kind of cool to see him share the screen with his dad, everything else about that, it sort of sets up few threads that eventually kind of pay off. But I'd rather have a movie about set him up as a gun runner and then drop us into Liberia and then spend, you know, an hour and a half there. And that would make more sense in terms of the story, but also in terms of Ethan Hawke, the Interpol agent, following him around. It just seems like there's too much happening. It's almost like they're worried to commit to something because they don't know if they'll be able to pay it off for a full movie. Yeah, there does seem to be a lack of commitment, especially in terms of how the movie feels about Yuri. I I get the feeling that he's sometimes painted, or often painted, as just this amoral, complete villain, but then, like... Something about the tone of the movie makes me feel like I'm supposed to be feeling for him somehow. I don't know how to feel. They do such a hard job of, of Yuri's point of view and him, like Kaufman does successfully, where he's like, you know, I'm fat, I'm a loser, I'm this, I'm that, and you kind of like empathize with him. And this one, Yuri keeps going like, I'm a bad guy, I'm not a good guy, I'm a liar, <laughs> I'm this. It doesn't really help me empathize with him very much. I, I think it might have paid to have the point of view voiceover maybe from another character flow in and out of this as well. Joey's <laughs> totally right. There's there's too much origin story. There's too much setup, and I think it could have been much better if you know we're, we're dropped into Liberia and, and we get a lot of that past maybe told in sort of flashbacks and things like that. They kind of feel like a string of flashbacks cut together and put in the front of the actual story that plays out later on in Liberia. Hitting on weird flashbacks again, I, I had this problem in Family Man. In the beginning when he was in, in Brighton Beach, he didn't look any younger. Once again, I don't know, maybe, maybe <laughs> Nick Cage is just like this ageless being. I'd like to see him as like a 10-year-old. He probably looks exactly the same. If you look at him in the in his first movies and stuff when he was 18, like he's got one of those bodies and one of those faces that he's always sort of been a man. Even when he's an 18-year-old, he looks sort of like the Cage Age, and he looks his like face looks a little younger, but he's aged progressively. It just I don't th- <laughs> I don't think flashbacks. Even if you filmed it actually ten years earlier, it wouldn't look that different. Oh man, Cagehood that would be the most amazing movie. <laughs> Cagehood, yeah. He, it seems like he hit early puberty or something. Well, actually, speaking of Cagehood, speaking of boyhood, <laughs> I had like this realization. Like this movie came out ten years ago, right? Ethan Hawke was already two or three years <laughs> into filming Boyhood. That's crazy to like, think about. I was watching it just like, oh, wow, like we, we were already seeing like a movie that just came out last year. He already started filming. Like I've never, I don't think I've gone back and watched any Ethan Hawke or Patricia Arquette movie from this time period since Boyhood came out. Huh. It's just weird to have that kind of cultural touchstone that, oh, yeah, he's, he's already like sort of significantly into the filming of Boyhood. Yeah. I was trying to place, like, Ethan Hawke around this time, too. I, I guess I knew him best from Training, Training Day. Day. Exactly, yeah. And so I sort of saw this as his evolution of trying for him to try and become an action star. I think he did the remake of Assault on Precinct 13 around this time, too. So I wonder if him being sort of the agent chasing Cage was one window into being more of an action star or something. But, yeah, it's just funny to think that boyhood also, like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> So what kind of frustrates me about the movie is that it starts out super flashy, that the opening credits are told over the life of a bullet. 
cool. they show the bullet from being made to eventually killing a kid. As I was writing, this bullet better wind up in someone's body or maybe man. <laughs> As I'm writing that, it hits the kid, like probably a 10-year-old kid in the forehead and destroys him. Yeah. Uh, so that's not exactly the what I wanted to see. Yeah, it's not but subtle. It's a little bit hacky and corny, mm. but it's also kind of cool. And then they just never go back to anything like that. Like, they use all of their creativity, all their creative juice up front in the credits, and then it's just sort of a straight story from them through. It feels like it was directed by somebody in college who had just seen Fight Club and was just like, yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and just no filter and no subtlety. And yeah, that point of view had to go not only into a child, but you had to see the flash of red. You had to see that. <laughs> they couldn't have cut to black. They couldn't have. No, they had to be just like, look, the bullets kill kids. Like, we know that. It felt a little on the head as much of this movie did. And speaking of Fight Club, it's like, let's just get Jared Leto in there, too. Yeah. Like, let's, just, <laughs> let's completely ape the opening credits and bring in Angel Face. That's going to be great. Like, this, <laughs> it's everything I've wanted. Like, this is college me getting really excited. Oh, my God. And the way, there's something from later in the movie that I, I wrote. The plane goes through a rolling stop and ends right in front of a baby. Or I wrote, what is this? The Simpsons? Mm-hmm. I was just like, ah, he just took me out of everything. There, there, there's no subtlety. This movie has no chill. Yeah, I think that's the main thing is like, I'm starting to realize that it's not going to be very subtle at all. Like, not only voiceover, but the imagery and a lot of the shots and things like that are going to try and hit you over the head with metaphor. I, I mean, it's cool looking and stuff at times, like Cage standing on a war-torn street covered in bullet shells, right? Like, that that's awesome. really, that's like an awesome image. And like this bullet being made through the factory and stuff, like this stuff is, it's like cool and everything, but part of it, just like, I, I thought maybe it would have been better if the bullet wound up sold in a gun store in America and then like some kid shot his like friend but i guess that's another movie you know he they're trying to set up like this bullet and maiden maybe made in like a civilized land is going to travel to these you know war and torn regions and this the journey that cage is going on in this film i don't know but yeah the director is definitely coming out of the gate with like his arms in the air pumping his fists you know <laughs> that's how i that's how i sort but, of take it but you can't help get the feeling that he kind of thinks guns are cool like through yeah, this that's, that's the other thing too right i, I can't tell if this is a, like a pro or anti-gun message film very confusing but i guess you know gray areas and stuff but this movie doesn't want to, doesn't really <laughs> want to show us the gray areas that much it kind of wants to try it, everything becomes black or white and in, in, in different directions in the film because it's so gray because they don't really commit to one way or the other it had a difficult time being made that apparently no u.s studios wanted to back the film hmm. which i can understand why because at the end of the movie, it says that this is based on actual events. Like, there are gun runners who supply third world countries with guns, basically so they can just continue to kill one another. If they had committed more fully to, you know, either like an ironic, like, this is a good thing, like, look at this guy making all this money, or really just a condemnation of it, but because they kind of toe the line both sides, it winds up being this confusing, muddled sort of project. This is coming out, you know, I mean, we don't really talk about, like, 9-11 a lot in, in on Cage Club, but, like, you kind of have to, I think, a little bit with this film because we're, we're, like, four years after 9-11. This movie's about a guy pretty much supplying, like, the Taliban, right? And He, he mentions working, Bin Laden. He, yeah, he, he mentions, the, like, oh, I never sold to Bin Laden. Like, I'm not that evil, right? But no, but <laughs> no, it wasn't because he didn't want to. It was because his checks bounced. He's basically saying, I would have wholeheartedly sold to Bin Laden if he just had his finances in order. And, 
and and one of the like major things about Yuri and why and how he's sort of able to operate around the world the way he does is that one of his major clients is the United States. You know, like he works for the U.S. and like underground dealing, doing arms deals for countries that they can't be seen doing deals with and stuff. So like, you know, I could fully understand why studios are sort of backing away from this at the time. It, it's not quite as patriotic as you know last time's National Treasure. And that might be why it was uh, inexplicably getting fairly good reviews when I looked it up. I had to, I had to look it up. I was like, oh no, this, they probably loved this movie. <laughs> he also talks about how these, this one particular type of gun is easy to smuggle through airport security. Not that I would recommend it, but it's just like, this sort of <laughs> seems all kind of tasteless and weird, especially as you were saying, so close right after 9-11. I guess that part was prior to 9-11, so I guess uh, that might have been why it was easy to smuggle through. But still, just, yeah. just weird, a weird line. That's what's yeah. hard to sort of, like, the movie totally takes place like uh, it ends before 9-11 you know so like that is the weird thing about it it's like in the cultural context of the year the film was being made it seems sort of like tasteless at the time but for the time the movie takes place it was sort of just so not an issue or you know there just wasn't that stigma attached to it as much as there came to be and so we get a sense of cage growing up or where his family comes from they are ukrainian his name is yuri orlov they came to America from this place, Odessa, Ukraine. My name is Yuri Orlov. When I was a boy, my family came to America, but not all the way. Like most Ukrainians, we congregated in Brighton Beach. It reminded us of the Black Sea. I soon realized we'd just swapped one hell for another. For the first 20-odd years of my life, little Odessa was to me what it is to the Q train. The end of the line. Oh, I did lie about my name. It's not really Yuri Orlov. There have been few occasions in the 20th century when it's been an advantage to be a Jew. But in the 70s, to escape the Soviet Union, our family pretended to be Jewish. Little about my life has been kosher ever since. It's weird that we get sort of a lot of his background and also none of his background. <laughs> like, I feel like we know a lot of details about it, but we don't really have any context for it. Can, can you guys explain how he knew his wife? He said that he had worshipped her since he was 10 years old. Was she much older than him? I don't know. I feel like she was probably a little bit older, that she was probably a beauty queen in Ukraine and then moved to America. They talk about, isn't there like a little, like they, what do they call it? They call it Little Odessa, that there's mm-hmm. a Ukrainian village or a Ukrainian little neighborhood in Brooklyn or in wherever in New York they are. So she's got to be like at least like six or eight years older than him, though. I'm guessing if he's 10, she's probably 16, 18, maybe. They look about the same age, but I guess in terms of the narrative, that's what, what, that's what it would have to be. But they full, yeah. show a full-size cage watching her at the parade. Is, is, she, is he supposed to just be like a kid in metaphor adulthood? I don't. No, I don't. I think it's best to not dig too deeply. There. I was so confused. I almost saw her as just she was the local girl made good, just proof that someone can come from Ukraine uh, or immigrate to America and become something. And it's like his unattainable. It's uh, he's going to work to get that. Like Chris, that's but, his main diamond. That's what he wants to get. So like he's like maybe if I work hard one day, like I could have her. Later in the movie, she says she's from Williamsburg. She's not even a local. I'm. Uh, I don't know. Well, like, and everywhere he goes, he, he, like, his jaunt around the world when he first starts gun running, he kind of sees her billboards everywhere as well, right? Is that sort of, a, that's how I took it. Like, he's always getting 
out of a car saying, she beat me here, she beat me there, mm. or like, I, I see her everywhere. So it's almost like this token that he needs to obtain. I wish that we knew more about her, because I feel like she has the biggest journey in this movie, that by the end of the movie, that, you know, she starts as this beautiful beauty queen, by the end of the movie, she's got that, like, sort of heartbreaking speech to Cage about how she's never been good at anything in her entire life. <laughs> yeah, she was just and born, right? Like, all I had to do born. was be born. Ultimately, she leads to Cage's downfall, but we just don't know anything about her. That she's there, he brings her in, and he intentionally masks what he does from her. She just sort of fades into the background. They have a kid. We never, like, see them, like, we just cut forward and she just has a kid. She's just there trying to kind of figure out what he's doing, but also not really. She could have been such an important character to humanize Cage, maybe, or give this narrative like a through line that we could have followed. And she's just in the background. Like, she's there. Her story doesn't work because she doesn't really have an arc. That's one card they really should have pulled from the Goodfellas deck. Yeah, I mean, Ava is a very important character, and she should have maybe been a partner in crime at some point. You're right, like, Goodfellas is, you know, they could have, they should have just kept borrowing. <laughs> you know, why did they stop with the visual style? They should have studied the script a little better, too. She's totally underused, and she seems to be something the film really needed to play against Yuri, to play against Vitaly, to play against the friends, the fa- like whoever. Like we get a little at the end, it's great when he has an unexpected visitor show up at his house towards the end of the film and you sort of get a taste of what might have been a little bit if they went a different direction. But I totally agree. Another shortchanged female Cage Club actress. What was Cage before he was a gun runner? He was just an everyman? Just a guy who walked into places where murders happened. <laughs> Either five minutes into the future or five minutes behind. Right. I think the day that he sees his first murder, he's like, oh, these guys need to get their guns from somewhere. I'm going to be the guy who gives them the guns. Yeah, he's like, I want to be a part of that. Yeah, he sets up that his family owns a restaurant in Little Odessa, but you know, no one ever really goes there very unsuccessful. And you know, his, his father loves Judaism and his mother is Catholic. So, and so it's like he's kind of got like this confused... I sort of see it as like he's sort of... There's like this confusion almost about his heritage in a way. And so he might want to try and get back to his roots at some point. And he goes across the street to like the hot nightclub where he sees an assassination attempt on like a Russian mobster. Who's a badass. Yeah, he's like a total badass, right? And he's like, that's what I want to do, right? He's like, people are going to die anyway. Like, I might as well provide the means for that. It hit me. It couldn't have hit me harder if I was the one who had been shot. You go into the restaurant business because people are always going to have to eat. That was the day I realized my destiny lay in fulfilling another basic human need. The next Sabbath, I went to temple with my father. However, it wasn't God I was trying to get close to. My contact at synagogue landed me my first Israeli-made Uzi submachine guns. Can we talk about how bad the puns and stuff in this writing are? Brighton Beach was to me what it was to the Q train. End of the line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just saw the beach and was like, okay... Cage's home in, in his domain. I wasn't thinking anything beyond the actual cage at the beach. Like That's just all I saw. I wasn't even listening. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, these, these, he, he hits the New York stuff so hard. It, I mean, <laughs> I guess as a New Yorker, I'm just like, ugh. He, he says that Vitaly does lines as long as the Belt Parkway at some point. Yeah, oh, my God. And everything is just so pat. He's just like, it hit me. It couldn't have hit me harder if I was the one who'd been shot. My favorite one, though, is when they're in the kitchen, because Jared Leto is a cook to start the movie off. The dog. And Cage says, beware of dog. 
we don't have a dog. He's like, no, it's the dog inside of me. Uh, beware of the dog. You don't have a dog. Are you trying to scare people? No, it's to scare me. Remind me to beware the dog in me. The dog wants to fuck everything that moves, wants to fight and kill weaker dogs. I guess it's uh, to remind me to be more human. Isn't being a dog part of being human? What if that's the best part of you? The dog part? What if you're really just a two-legged dog? Oh, my God. Uh, Jared Leto's character is so over the top. I mean, he already did it better in Requiem for a Dream. Why did he have to try again? I don't think this was like really like a payday for anyone because the budget on this was about $50 million. It made worldwide seventy-two. Mm. I think in the in the U.S. only made about twenty-four. So it's not like there was a massive budget where they could be like they could just kick back and get paid. I think a lot of the money for this movie went into the production values. I don't know that they necessarily made a lot of money, so I don't know why Jared Leto did it. I don't. Whatever his reason, though, he, he probably has to re- reevaluate. I actually thought that Jared Leto was like kind of good in this. Um, I was enjoying his performance mostly because every time we see him, he's like the different extreme, right? Like we meet him and he's just like a cook or a chef. Cage drags him into the business with him. And a few years later, he's like a strung out cokehead when we cut to him. And then he goes even further off the wagon and he's more of this. And then we meet him again and he's clean. So I kind of I kind of liked how we checked back in with him from time to time. And maybe that's why he worked for me because there wasn't too much of him. I just never felt like he had agency. I felt like he was just kind of this mm-hmm. uh, person to remind Cage that other people exist and, and to be sympathetic and to be somebody who is having a hard time among all of this. And so when he dies, it's supposed to be this, this real hard-hitting thing. But he never felt like a fully fleshed out person to me. I think that's almost by design, right? I don't know that I want to give the movie credit, but I think that he maybe isn't fully fleshed out because his character as a person isn't. That he's not a good cook, and that's why it's so easy for Cage to grab him and bring him to sort of be his literal brother in arms as they go around the world. Cage, like, mocks, like, he, he, he like eats the food and just starts to gag about how bad his cooking is. And he says, like, how he can eat at the restaurant for free and he doesn't just because he hates the food so much, it, it might be intentional. Leto can't do things, and so he's just willing to follow Cage along to hopefully find something that he's actually good at. Oh, he follows him like a loyal dog. Hey, the dog metaphor again. That's why, <laughs> that's why it was set up. He is a dog. I wondered about that, Joey. Like, are we just seeing things from Yuri's perspective, and he just doesn't really care about his brother? He doesn't really care about his wife and his family, and that's why they're not in the movie so much, you know? Like, is the point that his real love is his job? But, but they, you know, I don't have an easy time getting there. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm deducing that now, but I'm not getting it while I'm watching the film. And they go to the Berlin gun show, and Cage is put in this place. They're told it's no place for amateurs. They go to Beirut, and this is Cage's first big break. It sort of sets up the political undertone of the whole movie, that when the U.S. goes to these countries, they go to Lebanon, and they're done with the conflict there. They just leave the guns behind. And so Cage has to go to U.S. government officials to buy the guns from them so he can flip them and sell them to somebody else. We're not there long enough to see him actually really follow through on something, right? That he just walks into this warehouse where it's just floor-to-ceiling massive piles of guns. Cool shot. As soon as we're invested in it, like, we're done. We're out of there. 
And then you just see him keep getting, like, shot, guns pulled on him. He doesn't seem to be all that good at what he does. Well, it's weird. Like, they go to the gun show, you know, like the Berlin Arms Fair, and he's basically told, you're out of your league, kid. And then the next time we see him, he's in, like, a airplane hangar. They're like, we sell guns by the kilo. And it's just, like, with a scale in the middle of the room. And it's like, how did how did he how get, he get there? there? Yeah, like, I kind of, that feels like it should have been more of the movie. Like, I don't really care about, like, getting, it's a cool shot, but I don't really care about getting that little snippet if it's not really... How long did that take? Did that take a year or two years? I guess it took a year, right? So, like, a year later, he's, like, running his own business, and it's it's a little too far-fetched, I guess, but, hey, it's based on true stories, so maybe things move quickly in the gun trade. Like, his initial contact was, was at the synagogue, right? Is that, that, that was what was happening? He, he met the people there, and they got him involved? He has an uncle who's, like, a general in the Soviet army. But you don't... You don't never hear back from the people who got him into it in the first place. That's the other thing. They're just like this shadowy X-Files type figure shot in... I also feel like he's a self-made man that we see him greasing the palms of all these gatekeepers to countries. It almost seems like once he got his foot in the door, however that was, whether it was through some kind of familial connection or just lucky break, he kind of keeps the ball rolling by just knowing whose palms to grease and knowing how to win people over and then getting in good and just sort of being a likable guy that these warlords or lords of war want to do business with. He does mention at one point that there is just too many people working in legit industries so that he he, he had a, a leg up just by the fact that it's illegal, I guess. I get a lot of matchstick men from his character in here, Joey. Mm. You know, like he's just like a natural salesman. Like when, yeah. when he turns it on, he could sell a used gun to someone if he had to. <laughs> you know? Like whatever, whatever. Is like, he could sell you a pen, no problem. A little Wolf of Wall Street sell me this pen? <laughs> yep. <laughs> In the middle of the movie, when his wife wants him to go legitimate, that she doesn't know what he's doing, but she knows it's not on the up and up, she basically forces him to do something right, and it seems like he would be good at this. Before we even have time to invest in him as an honest salesman, he just thrust back into the gun ring. I don't know if he's selling land for oil or for animal. Like He talks about their species that they can take advantage of. I don't know what exactly he's doing. It's like the movie doesn't care enough to be like, okay, <laughs> here's what he's selling. Let's go see him do it. No, it's like there's two minutes of that, and then he's just off selling guns again. Well, the movie cares as little as he does about it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but he said that the first time you sell a gun is a lot like the first time you have sex. You have no idea what you're doing one way or the other. It's over way too fast. <laughs> the first time you sell a gun is a lot like the first time you have sex. You have absolutely no idea what you're doing, but it is exciting, and one way or another, it's over way too fast. The new Uzi machine pistol. Big firepower in a small package. This little baby uses 9mm hull points, 20, 25 round extendable mags, rear flip adjustable sights. Silencer comes standard. Excellent recoil reduction. Muzzle jump reduced 40%, 60% improved noise suppression. You could pump a mag into me right now and never wake the guy in the next room. Of course, that would eliminate your opportunity for repeat business. You can audibly hear him sigh at the end of that line. It, He's just like, oh, I can't believe I have to say these lines. He's not happy doing voiceover. He mumbles. He's muddy. He... He, he just sounds like he's just not in it. You know what I was thinking about that is, couldn't his character grown up with like a, an accent, perhaps? Like, I almost oh, feel yeah. like, 
less voiceover, more accent, talk to the camera, break that fourth wall, I might have been much more into this. Like, we haven't yeah. had Cage with an accent for a few films. I think maybe Captain Corelli scared him off of accents for a little while. Yeah. Uh, it got a little nuts in that film, but I think it would have been easy. I mean, you could have just done Russian accent, no? <laughs> he mentions being uh, English as a second language, and yet he talks just like he does all the time. And Jared Leto, too. They're both ESL. Not even a Brooklyn accent. But they do cut to them speaking Ukrainian whenever they're really afraid or really passionate so they cut to Jared Leto having sex and he's like grunting in Ukrainian <laughs> it's like whenever there's like their their emotions are super heightened they go into their native tongue and so they're able to speak like there are more than just a handful of lines spoken in Ukrainian it is weird and it sounds I mean I don't have an ear for that it sounds pretty authentic, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, it, it is sort of it is sort of weird how it doesn't translate to their English. Yeah, they don't even have a Brooklyn accent. I would I would have settled for Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, Cage even bribes a Chinese guy at a border in Chinese. You know, he's doing it. It sounds real to me. I'm you know I don't know if he went out and he learned Chinese and he learned Ukraine just for this film, but those moments are sort of what convinced me to be like, ah, oh, maybe he should have tried the accent. It just would have given me something else in the film because I guess I'm just not feeling it as much. He, he does say at one point he has a talent or a knack for accents or something like that. He sort of is like bilingual or trilingual or whatever the situation calls for. He's got a line that he when he later in when he's in Africa, he all he needs to know is are you HIV positive? Do you have AIDS? And like yeah. I feel like he goes to these places and the character learns enough to make a deal or to get by for a few days or something. Also something I totally forgot about. Wait, does he get AIDS? He slept with that woman. <laughs> well, Wait. We don't find out. <laughs> I feel I, I was that a hallucination? I wonder no I don't think it's a hallucination <laughs> because that is when he started his life going goes off the rails he starts doing a lot of cocaine he's snorting con- brown, brown. he's snorting cocaine mixed with gunpowder and just having un- he's so messed up that he just passes out and wakes up to some prostitute having sex with him that things are not going well at that point for cage in terms of the languages and the the accents and stuff i really wonder if this is kind of like captain corelli's mandolin where we should have been speaking italian and german and greek do all the Liberians actually speak English? Like, it seems like there's mm-hmm. a lot of people conveniently speaking English just to make it easier for us to watch the movie. Yeah, I was okay with that. I'm just trying to come up with some excuse as to why Cage doesn't have an accent. It looks very glossy, but it's it kind of feels more like an indie. So you're right, there was, maybe there was an opportunity to say, let's do this, you know, everyone speaks their own language, heavy subtitles, it'll be artistic, you know, it'll give us sort of this edge. It, it, they had the opportunity to go there, and it feels like the material that would benefit benefit from that so maybe it's just something they never even thought of i'll tell you this though when i see nick cage and jared leto sort of doing lines of coke and later on and i'm thinking acid yellow all i really kept saying during this scene is uh is ukraine cocaine ukraine (laughs) cocaine over and over again that's just another one of those things the movie's doing that's annoying me a little bit and then they make a, a ukraine out of cocaine they do. Jared Leto does the whole cocaine border. He's like, I don't remember much, but I remember this. And he just outlines it all around the table, and then Cage, in a huff, just wipes it all clean. Kind of like he does in Wind Talkers when he draws that church very angrily, clearing art from the table with his arm. <laughs> One thing I like about Cage's character is how he wins over his wife. It's kind of the ultimate baller move that she's this beautiful, world-famous model, and he pays her $20,000 for this supposed photo shoot, and she shows up where he is, and he pays another $12,000 to rent out the hotel, so it's just those two. He kind of wins her over, and he offers her a plane ride where she needs to go next, and he rents out a private jet and puts his name on it and rents out this amazing suit and this really fancy car, 
and makes it seem like he owns all this stuff. And he must have spent, I don't know, like $50,000, maybe more, to win her over. I don't know if that's cool. I don't know if that's supposed to be funny and entertaining, or if that's supposed to be like a condemnation of how blind she is to material things. At the time, it certainly felt like they were trying to make us think he was a cool guy. It didn't strike me as one of those, like, he's a villain moments. It struck me as one of his he's relatable moments. Yeah, it, it's almost something they try to do in Wolf of Wall Street to get you to like that guy a little more, too, right? Where he's like, I'm just going to impress the hell out of this girl, and she's going to be mine, and you know, throw my cash around, and <laughs> look how like cool it is to be rich, right? And like all that stuff. <laughs> but he does mention he almost lost like his whole fortune trying to get her at one point, and uh, I just thought that was also cool how he sort of like repaints the airplane, like he paints the boat, and he's like using all of his gun-running tricks and his smooth-talking lies to get her. He's creating a very dangerous bedrock for this relationship. He's back on a private jet for the first time, I think, since Face Off. We also get off-screen, but we get our mile-high compromising. They get busy while they're on the plane. They cut from the plane to them overlooking the city on their wedding day. It happened so fast that even though he almost blew his entire fortune, it was worth it, I guess, because he did get the girl. He says something about the view, and then all of their friends start clapping. I I, I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) I almost wish they just cut to, I now pronounce you man and wife, because it's like supposed to be a fake-out. It's like, oh, look, they're living in New York together. Wait, what? They're married, you know? Like, all in one shot. And it's just like, ugh. And then they cut from being married to them having a kid, and the kid takes his first steps on Christmas morning, and Cage does not care because the Cold War is over, and what that means is that he's able to sell guns to Europe. It feels too one-note that he... Like, we don't see him getting disinterested in his family life. He pulls out all the stops to get this girl, they get married, they have a kid. We don't see any of that, really. And then he's already disenchanted and more... Like, it, it makes it seem like, and I don't think this is the case for the character makes it seem like he never cared about this girl, that he only always cared about the guns. They really don't bother to humanize him very much at all, unlike other kind of movies in this genre of criminal biopic kind of thing. I I feel like they really should have spent more time trying to have him justify his actions, justify why he was being someone... I mean, yeah. Uh, I keep coming back to Goodfellas. Even even as he cheats on his wife in Goodfellas, you, you get the sense that he loves her. It, it, it's weird. Yeah, and I, I just kind of saw it as, now that he has her, like, that was it. Like, the whole goal was just trying to get her. And now that she's his, it's, like, kind of whatever. Okay, no, I have a- her. I can, like, put her in my shipping container. And, like, I can just put her on display for people and back to work. Because that's what I really love to do. Going back to the Dark Knight, like we talked about. We haven't brought back to the Dark Knight in a while. He's kind of like the Joker chasing car. Like, He's a dog a chasing cars. Joker. Dog. Jarrett Leto. <gasps> Whoa. <Uh-oh. laughs> but he's like a dog chasing cars, right? Like he doesn't know what to do if he catches one. Like he's, he's been chasing this girl for 20, 30 years, whatever. And now that he actually has her, just like, oh, all right. That's the problem with dream girls. They have a tendency to become real. <laughs> yeah, and, and they just re-emphasize this. Like, I get a feeling that they've really compacted a lot of his life story into like pivotal moments and piled them on top of each other. Because it's like, yeah, Christmas Day, like just to really hammer home how much like he loves selling guns. He's watching TV and the end of the Cold War while his son is is walking, and it's just like, all right. <laughs> and they're like, Yuri, Yuri, your son's walking. He's like, I, I get it, I heard you, right? But Gorbachev, man. Guess it should have been a uh, like a trilogy or a miniseries. 
I don't, <laughs> I don't want to give the wrong impression. Like, this isn't based on one guy. Supposedly, oh. it's either based on a guy, maybe Victor Bout. Apparently, a lot of this guy's life mirrors Cage in this movie. But another thing I read was that he's kind of a composite of five different people. So it's not like they're basing it one-to-one off one particular guy. It's kind of like a day in the life of an international gun runner. This is the kind of life that they that they live. That they're in a beautiful apartment. I know. I mean, Zach, you you would probably have a better sense of it in terms of that beautiful apartment must be millions and millions yeah, of dollars, it's, right? In it's New York out City, of my conception, how much expensive <laughs> that place is. Like even that hallway that they walk mm-hmm. into when the librarians show up, I'm like, that is beautiful enough to live in. Like <laughs> everything about that building is just flawless. Oh, yeah. That they have this beautiful apartment, beautiful wife, everything he could ever ask for. That's the kind of life that any one of these guys would have. It's not that it's, okay, this is the real-life Yuri Orlov. Like, we don't cut to that at the end. It's just, this is based on actual events saying, like, this kind of thing actually happens. Well, that would explain why the characters are so one-dimensional, is that none of them actually exist, just the things that they do. (laughs) And I think it also explains to me why there feels like too much happens in this movie for a movie. You know, I never thought I'd kind of say that, but it's just like, I just have a hard time buying like all this stuff is happening to one guy. And I did think it was based on one guy. Yeah. You know, I was not privy to that information. And it just, it kind of made me drift to films like Blow, which, you know, does something similar to Goodfellas, but it remains distinct in and of itself because, you know, it's about blow. It's not about mobsters. Whereas, like, this could have... It, it could have done for guns what blow did for coke, I guess. I don't know. But it, mm. it, miss, it missteps a few times for me. I think that if it is just copying Goodfellas, the biggest problem it has is that it's trying to cram a three-hour movie into two hours. <laughs> yeah. That there's just not enough time for them to cover everything. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think, going back to what we were talking about at the top, if they'd been more selective in terms of what they showed, we would have known so much more about everything. But it's like they felt this kind of internal struggle. Like They wanted to make sure that they showed everything. Because they show everything, we get a sense of nothing. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. That's yeah, yeah. I feel the same. I feel very much the same way. And you know, and again, like they introduce Ethan Hawke, Agent Valentine. They introduce him fairly early on, and then he just vanishes for most of the film, right? And then <laughs> he like pops up in a fighter jet, and I'm like, is that Ethan Hawke? Like, what did he? How is he in a fight? Is he that kind of agent? Like, what is oh, going yeah. on? Is he everybody, Felix later? Like, what? Everybody in this movie does everything themselves. Like, he does not delegate to anybody. <laughs> uh, Ethan Ethan Hawke has to be in the fighter jet himself. Nicholas Cage has to be in the cargo jet on the way to Monrovia. He, I'm just like, he had to have people doing this for him. Like, why would you put yourself in that unnecessary amount of risk? Movie magic. It's got to be him. He's the kind of guy who we don't know anything about. Also, I don't know why, aside from that one time that they're in the truck when Cage goes legit and they're overhearing his conversation that everything checks out, we never see him at work without Cage around. It's not like Delroy Lindo and Timothy Oliphant in Gone in 60 Seconds, where we see them talking and sort of strategizing. Like, he is the face of Interpol, right? That it's... I think it's just him every time, him in the fighter jet, him following Cage around, him on that boat coming up to Cage's boat. The only reason I think it's Ethan Hawke every time is A, because it's Ethan Hawke and he's a big-name actor, but B, just because we wouldn't be able to follow, like, oh, this is just another Interpol agent? Like... I, I don't, yeah, I don't no, know. I, I think it's. Just, I get it. I get it. It's it's legibility. If they had showed him off the job and given him sort of a background and other things to do, it would have made more sense, and I would have believed that it was him. That if he was singularly focused, and they have that one line that he goes for gun runners instead of nukes because these are what kill people, and so it seems like he, as a character, has this focus, has a reason for hunting down Cage. 
But like outside of that, we never see him do anything. And I wish that we saw him behind the scenes at the desk at Interpol offices saying, I'm going to get this guy. This is where he's going next. He's very much Javert from Les Mis. I, I, I always got, came back to that. It's just this, like, principled to a fault cop. And he's just, like, has this one guy he's going after his entire life. Yeah, but you know what was awesome about Javert was he went undercover. You know, like, this guy, <laughs> Ethan Hawke, has been chasing him for, like, 10 to 15 years. You know, like, this is his white whale in my eyes. And I needed a scene you read at Interpol where he either has a team that we're getting to know or he's getting chewed out by his boss because he's wasting all these man hours or, or something to that effect. Or maybe he does, you know, try and pull off a sting or some kind of setup that goes awry. But again, the movie the movie isn't trying to tell that story, but it, it needed to make some time for it, I think, to emphasize, you know, Yuri's danger a little bit more because we don't really get, we only get the danger from the people he's selling guns to, you know? We don't really get a sense that he's worried about Interpol to any degree. He kind of feels like a really happily kind of not that good at his job guy. Give him the Yuri file and like keep him (laughs) (laughs) But he kind of feels like the Kyle Chandler character from Wolf of Wall Street, right? Like he's this guy singularly focused on Mm -hmm. taking Cage down. He also is sort of like that Kyle Chandler character. Cage talks about how when they're out in Africa, like he could just have this vigilante or whatever that he teams up with to find Cage. He could just have him kill Cage there, but he's too good of a cop. He's a good guy. He's a good cop. He's not going to break the law. And even though he knows Cage is a criminal and doing all these illicit things, he's not going to stoop to his level. So he's really like this beacon of goodness, and we just we don't know enough about him to really get on his side. Yeah, plus he has that Ethan Hawke face that makes you hate him a little bit. (laughs) He's not trying to be good cop. He wants to be a good cop. You still get the sense that, like, he's kind of a prick and all these kinds of things, too. So it's not like they did his character, like, a lot of favors in the likability department. (laughs) Again, it would have helped if we had just maybe seen him go home to a a kid or a wife or something or visit a grave. I don't care. Just (laughs) flesh him out for for one scene. These are good notes. His time in Europe kind of runs dry. He sort of does everything he can out there. I don't know if he says these exact words. So it's basically what he what they say, and it might be word for word that he says that Africa is a gun runner's wet dream, and so they just go down there because that's where all the money is. Places like Sierra Leone and Liberia. There's so much war going on in Africa that this is where the high profits are. One of the reasons he sort of ends up in Africa is because he's got a sweet, sweet deal going with his uncle Dmitry in the Ukraine. Other gun runners are coming to Dmitry and he's turning them down and stuff, but he's sticking with his nephew. And there's this scene, three out of the last four movies we watched, we've had this scene where like everything's going Dmitry's way and he's having the time of his life and everything's coming up roses. He gets into a car and it explodes. Are you talking about the most predictable car bomb in the history? <laughs> oh my god, the long shot of that car as he walked in, I was just like, well, that's going to go. But and he's like, he's like, I, I loaded it up. There's like, there's cigarettes, there's everything you want in the car. Just, just get in the car. Like, every movie cliche in terms of setting up a car bomb, and Cage doesn't know about it, but like everything, it just, it's so predictably going to explode that I was just like, all right, like, if go. it didn't explode, I would have been blown away. Yeah, he was so close, he could have like stabbed him in the face. There's like any other quieter way to kill this guy. It did not need to be a carbon. Well, now, like, I'm just extremely weary of anybody having a great day and then getting into a car in the rest of Cage's <laughs> films. I'm like, all right, it's just going to, he's going to die. I just, that's all I'm going to keep thinking. And Cage goes to Liberia and he meets up with this guy, Baptiste. And is he the one who shoots the guy that the their first interaction to test out the gun 
he shoots a guy just like in his squad or just in the room. I think it was like a he, kid, wasn't it? It was somebody. It was nothing. I don't know if he was like a kid, kid, but he was he was young. I mean, it wasn't just like a guy. It was it was a younger guy. Yeah, I think what was going on is he was sort of his guard was fooling around or flirting with one of the girls in the room, uh, and, and no. he shoots him, and he's like discipline, right? He's like, uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, there yeah. was sort of like a reason behind it, but I think he was trying to make more of a point to Yuri about the type of person he is. And Yuri freaks out, and then instead of being freaked out that his gun just killed a person, he's like, you gotta take the gun now, like, I can't sell a used gun, like, come on, man. And then, was he covering? Because, like, the, the, the level of which freakout he had, he, this, I don't... Potentially this yeah, guy's it, gonna buy thousands and thousands of guns, well, let him ha- have one. Like, holy shit. I don't know. I don't know, I think, but whatever whatever the reason for his freakout was, it endears Baptiste to him, right? You know, he's like, I, I like this guy, like, I can't get a used gun, I like this guy. Yeah, and Baptiste is like he's a warlord for like they talk about warlord lord of war this and that but this guy is like the real deal he's like a demon in charge of <laughs> liberia you know like he's like a bad guy and all about massacre and stuff like he's like the devil <laughs> that's what i got pretty much and and his son is like worse yeah he's like gonna be even worse in 10 years or so the most important thing about him i think is that he's the most well-defined character in the entire movie <laughs> that far. he has character quirks like we we're saying like mike was just saying instead of saying bloodbath he's says Bath of Blood, which admittedly is way cooler. Oh, yeah. Instead of saying Warlord, he says Lord of War, and he's like, I like it my way better. You know, they call me the Lord of War, but perhaps it is you. It's not Lord of War. It's Warlord. Thank you, but I prefer it my way. Like, he has these quirks, he has these... He actually has traits. He has character traits. He's not just an everyman or a guy that represents an entire organization. He's like a singular, actual, sort of well-defined character. It's like uh, he is the scriptwriter and Nicolas Cage is everyone else trying to tell him to make changes. And he's just like, no, I like my way better. <laughs> <laughs> What's crazy about Baptiste is like how scary I found him because of sort of how endearing he comes across. You know, like these guys, like they just smile and smile and just seem to be having the time of their life. And then it like as soon as you say or do or he hears something that he doesn't agree with, they change on a dime. I recognize this actor from Oz where he was like extremely intense and uh, it was just good to see his the contrast come out of the character. You know, one minute he's like happy-go-lucky and then the next minute he's like this super serious, bloodthirsty bad dude. And speaking of contrast, we then go back to America, and apparently Ava is a painter and sold her first painting. Like, what? <laughs> what? I don't understand. Like, we have this great scene between Cage and this character, between him and Baptiste, and then we're back in America, and it's just like, Ava's happy that she's doing something we had no idea she was doing. I think she's, she's going through a midlife crisis, clearly, and I think that's kind of awesome. I, I thought she was an art dealer, and Cage, like, bought a painting from her gallery or something like that, and she's like, I sold my first painting, but then we see her painting, and I'm like, yeah. whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> There's so little actually set up about their relationship. Baptiste gives Cage, as a thank you for the guns, he sends these two beautiful young prostitutes to his room. He wants them so bad, but he, he puts them out. Not that he's monogamous to Ava, but because he doesn't want to get AIDS. And he says that, you know, despite the other women, I always had sex with Ava like she was the only one. Mm. Like, he's a terrible guy, and the only reason he's not having sex with these girls is because they might have AIDS. Like, there's so many blanks that I just don't fill in. Instead of showing us a scene of him, you know, I guess they do show him with that one girl that one time. 
instead of showing us, they just tell us over voiceover. There you go. That's the major problem in this movie, is just too <laughs> much telling, not enough showing. It felt, again, like they're cramming too much in. Like, I don't need AIDS on top of all this other stuff going on. Like, it just seems dangerous enough as it is. I don't get the sense that he's the kind of guy who's going to lose control to that degree at any moment. Little do I know. The one little detail I do like we get, it kind of flew over my head at first, and I kind of had to rewind. Is like Andre Baptiste Jr., who kind of gives me like this little junior vibe, Joey, <laughs> from uh, Kiss of Death. They say he's a cannibal, and he eats human hearts to gain power and knowledge and stuff. I was like, oh, yeah. what? I was like, I'll why is that. he in? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you can't just drop that, too, and like not follow <laughs> up on it, either. There are a lot of unfired Chekhov's guns in this. I guess that's what the, the AIDS thing was. Like, when he, when he sees those two girls for the first time, he has to establish that AIDS is a thing, and then later, when he goes on his brown, brown bender, he has maybe has sex with maybe hallucination. Then that Chekhov's gun, we don't know if it hit him or not. I, re- I just keep coming back to that. I would have at least loved to see him go to the like, doctors and be like, relieved that he didn't pick it up. Like, it just like, they didn't bring that up. That was like a really important thing that they'd set up in a scene previously and then they just ignored. In some alternate reality, Cage gets leprosy in Time to Kill and he gets AIDS in this movie. <laughs> like, unlike Time to Kill, which we all agree is not a good movie, he never goes and like talks about the symptoms of AIDS. You know what I mean? Like, he in Time to Kill, he goes and finds out what it would look like if he were sort of becoming infected with leprosy and at the end of the movie he finds out definitively from that girl's father that she did not have leprosy here just like oh no you didn't give me AIDS did you and then nothing more about AIDS for the entire rest of the movie I actually think it would make for a much stronger ending if he gets off he he, he, he continues to sell guns to the government and he gets off his charge and he goes back to doing everything but you just see a couple lesions on his face I think that would be be like an oh shit he's, he, he did actually kind of suffer from all this yeah it's amazing of all the things that they try to pay off it's the something they set up towards the end of the movie they don't even give you time to sort of forget about him mentioning AIDS. I think it would have just been stronger if he wakes up in bed with the strange and dirty prostitute. You made the best point. It's like, you don't show Chekhov's gun and fire it without showing who it hit, you know? Like, <laughs> like they literally, like, they take the gun, they shoot it, and then, like, we don't know who it hit. Or, you know, in a movie about guns, that was, uh, <laughs> that was all intentional. The way that the movie sort of brushes it all into the rug is that Cage, in a voiceover, of course, says that he's worried that he's plagued with the curse of invincibility, that he doesn't necessarily get AIDS, that there are those leopards or mountain lions or some kind of very angry cats that come up to him, like, sniff him and then walk away. Why would he be worried that he's invincible? I don't understand. Does he want to die? I guess there is that kind of, like, at the end, he stays untouchable, he gets to keep everything, but he loses his wife, his child, his family... There's that kind of like, it's it's the societal version of watching everybody you love die because you're immortal. Yeah, I think it's the big cosmic joke, right? Like, he sells this product that kills people, but he can't die himself. Kills him on the inside, yeah. <laughs> this thing that he sells, you know, his wares, his goods, directly lead to killing his brother. That they go to unload this massive score of guns... And Jared Leto gets in his head. Like, he, he kind of freaks out. Like, he, I guess he sees who they're going to use the gun on. Like, he kind of has, like, a little breakdown, right? Mm-hmm. And decides then and there, it's sort of a suicide mission that he's going to blow up as many guns as possible just so, like, earlier in the movie, like Ethan Hawke says, somebody's going to get these warlords' guns, but he's trying to give these people an extra day of life. What really kind of 
bothered me about that scene is they're doing the deal on some cliff and Vitali walks over and like looks over the cliff and there's this sort of encampment of people and he sees one of them get like macheted to death for trying to escape or something and he's like you're gonna sell these guns and they're immediately gonna go and shoot those people with it i'm like what that just felt super duper lazy to me you know like <laughs> they're right there how do you, you don't have any gun, any guns that you can do that with already? yeah couldn't they have just done it where like they drove through some poor shanty village on the way to the deal and he kind of puts two and two together or he just has like that crisis of conscience on his own that bothered me that was just Very way too facile. lazy but also, like, what did you think the guns were being used for? He, like, it's not like he doesn't know what they're selling. He knows what they're selling. Like, how do you have this crisis of faith, I guess, just putting a face to the victims? It's not like he talks to a victim, you know, one-on-one. He just sees them kind of from afar, close-ish, but, like, from afar, and that's enough to set them off? I mean, I guess it reminded... He was, he was you know, not going to do it at first. But then I guess that kind of just reminded of him why he was hesitant. Yeah, it seemed like Vitaly's last stand in a way to get recognized by his brother perhaps but the whole idea was like he was clean and sober Yuri's like I need you for my last score brothers in arms and and so I just got the sense that he just didn't want to be there why wouldn't his character just sort of try and get through this last sale so he could just get home safe where he knows he's going to get home safe like and he'll never have to do it again it's a really strange leap that this you know clean and sober guy now i can understand if he was you know coked up vitali but he's like clean and sober one just like has this manic breakdown at the end and goes on a suicide mission i guess he just wouldn't be able to live with the guilt of knowing what he did and knowing the people he killed yeah i don't know so yeah seeing it right there would be a would definitely put it more into into perspective previous so they just sold it to somebody and then they went away and then, then you hear about things happening. You, it's like when they do, they said that in firing squads that half or one of the people would have blanks and so, so that they could convince themselves that theirs was the blank, that they've never actually killed anyone. Have you heard about oh, this? Yeah, I heard of that. And also mentioning firing squad, I mean, Vitali saw a firing squad earlier in the film, right? Like they yeah. make a deal and then like they're used to kill like a bunch of kids against the wall. Like he sees it then. He's yeah. seen it before. There is a way to make this work. I don't think it's like crazy that he has that turn of his crisis of conscience and stuff. I just think that there was a cleaner way to get it all across. Yeah, probably. And like, what is the fallout from the scene? But Cage in a voiceover just talking about how evil is always going to prevail, right? It's this depressing life view of evil guys are always like, there's always going to be evil in the world. The massacre played out exactly how Vitaly predicted. But then a half dozen other massacres happened in Sierra Leone that week. You can't stop them all. In my experience, you can't stop any of them. They say evil prevails when good men fail to act. What they ought to say is, evil prevails. I'm not sure how deeply it affects him. He seems to be torn up by his brother's death, and maybe just making him not think clearly, but he spends the $20 to get the bullets taken out of his chest that he can have the coroner fake a death certificate for heart failure. How badly does his death affect him? Because it seems he's sort of going to continue to soldier on through this, right? Like, it's not going to completely change the way he does things. He looks like he's a little bit more dead inside afterwards. I mean, he, ha- you see him standing with his briefcase outside of, think, the police station or something, and he, I mean, he, he might be thinking about the fact that he's getting arrested, but I, I, there's definitely a few, thing, few moments after his brother's death that really do feel like he has kind of changed in terms of just more joylessly doing his job. I got the sense 
sense that for the first time in his life, he got something. Like, he got it. Like, oh, my brother's dead now because of what I do. It hit home. One of my clients killed my brother. Like, shit. But then it kind of seems like to go away, right? Like, he's, he gets caught and is interrogated by Agent Valentine. And I kind of get the sense that where he's like, you know, Agent Valentine, like, someone's going to come in here and let me go. And, like, none of it's going to matter. I get the sense that he believes that about his brother's death. Like, yeah, my, my brother's dead. My family disowned me and it hurts now but what does it matter i'm just going to be back doing my job anyway and now i'll really be a monster because i don't have to worry about protecting a wife a kid a a family or anybody yeah because while this was all going on while they were going with jared leto down to sierra leone and while jared leto when when he gets killed ethan hawk goes to their apartment and he talks to ava and he says this is what your husband is doing and apparently her parents in the ultimate coincidence were gunned down by people who had bought guns from someone like Yuri, and so she sets off to figure out what Cage has been up to and finds his stash. In a voiceover earlier, Cage says that he knows when he has a tail, so he knows how to be careful, but she's just this model, painter, whatever, and doesn't know when she's being followed, and so leads Interpol directly to his stash. And so that's what helps Ethan Hawke finally put all the pieces together and have the evidence he needs. But Mike, like you were saying, he he sort of has too many connections. Like he knows all these really powerful people, and no matter what Ethan Hawke throws at him, somebody's going to be there to bail him out. Let me tell you what's going to happen. This way you can prepare yourself. Soon there's going to be a knock on that door, and you will be called outside. In the hall, there will be a man who outranks you. First, he'll compliment you on the fine job you've done, that you're making the world a safer place, that you're to receive a commendation and a promotion. And then he's going to tell you that I am to be released. You're going to protest. You'll probably threaten to resign. But in the end, I will be released. The reason I'll be released is the same reason you think I'll be convicted. I do rub shoulders with some of the most vile, sadistic men calling themselves leaders today. But some of those men are the enemies of your enemies. And while the biggest arms dealer in the world is your boss, the President of the United States, who ships more merchandise in a day than I do in a year, sometimes it's embarrassing to have his fingerprints on the guns. Sometimes he needs a freelancer like me to supply forces he can't be seen supplying. You call me evil. But unfortunately for you, I'm a necessary evil. That to me just felt like a deus ex machina, you know? Like, if we had seen a scene between him and, like, an American general or, like, something like this, we, we just sort of get a very vague handshake in a hallway at night or something in the beginning. And he and he kind of throws around the name, you know, America from time to time. But at the end here, it's supposed to be like they've had his back, you know? <laughs> like, they were his benefactor or something. Like, they come across as way more important here at the end than uh, I feel like they should i don't know it just comes out of nowhere yeah i'd have to know what part of the real story they're taking off from here but it it definitely like his only real connection with the legit gun running world was bilbo baggins that just like you know just didn't seem like a good connection they didn't like each other very much at all yeah so yeah at what point does the u.s go the u.s who is described in in the post credits as running or he describes it as running you know in a day what he runs in a year 
why did they really need him specifically? I'm sure they could find a slightly cleaner smuggler that didn't necessarily, you know, want to work with Bin Laden. Well, I mean, like he says at the end of the movie, he's a necessary evil. Maybe that's the reason. I don't know. Maybe it really is that bad. Maybe maybe that's the point. Maybe the fact that it makes no sense to us is a problem, and we should probably be uh, doing something about it. <laughs> so maybe this movie, maybe this movie is actually way smarter than we give it credit for. Yeah, well, all the all the logical holes are actually holes in reality's logic, and holes in our like lack of understanding about how the world works. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a few things that we've brought out that I'm like, ah, well, yeah, well, maybe that is that shitty. <laughs> <laughs> Monrovia was like another planet, planet Monrovia. <laughs> that's the what there's a lot of those in here i mean they even go out on a line like that just maybe grown where he's like you know if you're ever going to go to war just don't go to war with yourself most people are happy just to get out of jail i expect to be paid to leave i'm not a fool i know that just because they needed me that day didn't mean they wouldn't make me a scapegoat the next but i was back doing what i do best you know who's going to inherit the earth? Arms dealers. Because everyone else is too busy killing each other. That's the secret to survival. Never go to war. Especially with yourself. Uh, huh? Oh, yeah. Good. Good word of advice. Good cage advice there at the end. Cage advice, yes. Just have the word helicopter scene. What happened in the helicopter scene that was ridiculous? Where in the movie was it? I don't, it was right before the rolling stop in front of a baby, apparently. Oh. That, oh, that was... that was So it wasn't a helicopter scene. That was them in the plane when they're getting shot by the right. by Interpol. And they're like, we have to, we have to get, put it down. They're, Go on the highway there. And that's when they land on the highway. Yeah. And then they almost roll over a baby. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think there's any helicopters. It's just like jet fighters. I, and like that. Uh, I guess I have to watch the movie again. No, don't, don't, I, don't, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. It's not that much. I've seen it twice now. Um, I just don't need to. It's once more than me. Uh, and I think that's, that's perfectly okay. Yeah. Anything else either of you want to talk about Lord of War? His son's name in the film is Nikki, right? Like, yep. <laughs> so I think that's like the second or third time that his son's name is Nikki in a Nick Cage film. But at least I think at least second. Yeah, yeah you're at right. least two times. And his actual son Weston's name is Vladimir. Oh, and who did he play? He was the little fifteen-year-old grease monkey, like monkey oh, wrench. Okay, you know, he mechanic. Was cool. Yeah, there. I like that guy. Yeah. And one at one point, Cage even says to him, "Son, get down off there, you'll hurt yourself." And so it just—it's funny that he's saying to his son. I mean, he's just saying "son" as colloquialism, but he's actually talking to his son. So that's kind of cool. Anything else, Zach? Anything? I, no, I just—it's a bad movie. I just, it's not. It just thinks it's so much more clever than it is. It really just strikes me as no filter. It strikes me as somebody somebody who read a docu- read a, like a documentary on Steve Jobs and was like, oh, I just have to be an asshole and not let anyone tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> and and so he just made this movie. And but yet he was not as brilliant as Steve Jobs. So that happened. And I just think it just it trying to do too much. It's overbearing, cramming too much in there. I think like you said it earlier on, Joey, if they had just tried to tell a portion of his life story like any rational biopic tries to do, then it could have been something a little different, maybe something I would have enjoyed more. But they just try and cram too much of his life in or this character's life into one movie. So yeah, if they were going to treat it like a real person or a biopic, they maybe they should have followed the formula of a biopic a little closer. So a few little last bits of trivia. The first thing is that the only... We haven't had one of these in a while in terms of who was supposed to be in a role... 
but instead of Bridget Moynihan, it was supposed to be uh, Monica Bellucci. So I guess oh. they just wanted a pretty face for his wife. It didn't matter who she was or how good of an actress she was. They just wanted a pretty face in there. But she backed out due to scheduling conflicts, and then it went to Bridget Moynihan. Apparently, they used, in the scene where there's like the 3,000 AK-47s, they used real guns because getting real guns to like renting real guns was cheaper than getting prop guns. Whoa. So that's one thing. That's and a apparently testament when... to just how versatile and, and amazing that gun is. Just yeah, the whole <laughs> thing about how amazing that gun is. I guess part of it is it's a really cheap prop rental. And the other thing is that when there's the scene with the tanks and everything, they apparently had to let NATO know that they were shooting a movie. Otherwise, NATO would have seen aerial footage of what looks like a battle or looks like you know an army amassing <laughs> lots of strength and. They would have had to take action. So they have to let NATO know. Wow. Hey, like it's no, it's okay. Like we're just shooting a movie here. Jesus. I actually thought a lot of the arms dealing shots where you see a lot of the cache of weapons, I, I thought a lot of that was actually like computer generated, like after the fact. Like you see all those tanks lined up and I'm like, wow, now to know that, that I'm looking at that shot now, to know that those are, are actually there is pretty impressive like the production value of this film is probably the one thing it's got going for it i will say most of the time where uh, something was computer generated you could pretty much tell yeah like the opening sequence was though looking back on it now (laughs) 10 years later it's extremely unpolished but uh, does the job yeah i thought the opening was cool until we had to see it go right into someone's face it was just (laughs) (laughs) so that'll just about do it for lord of war zach thank you very much for joining us once again sorry that this wasn't as enjoyable as the family man but hey what can you do (laughs) no totally I, was this the movie that the poster had him walking through this, the city with a, a bow and arrow? No, I realized as I was watching this movie that we you sort of wanted that one. That's the Weatherman. That's the one that we're doing next. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, whatever. Uh, that shows how much I knew about this movie. <laughs> uh, this is the one where his like face was made of bullets. That's right. Yes. Uh, what is that? <laughs> Oh, speaking of that, it won an award for that poster. No, um, really? Well, not it, it, like an award is a loose term, but like for that poster, <laughs> it got recognized. It came in. It came in second place at the Golden Schmoes Award for favorite <laughs> movie poster of the year. Whoa! Wait, so like a good award is called the Golden Schmo? Like it, apparently, it seems like that would be like a goof or something. Okay. <laughs> Uh, no, Golden Schmoes, they do Best Actor of the Year, Best Actress oh. of the Year. Like It's all best stuff. Best Director of the Year went to Robert Rodriguez for Sin City that year. It seems like an award ceremony that we should be checking out. Who? I wonder who won Favorite Movie Poster that year. you got to check the posties. Like That's the real posters <laughs> show that you want to win. Oh, Sin City won the favorite poster that year. Oh, uh, tough, tough uh, year. Right, Up against Batman Begins, the forty-year-old version, and Munich. So I like that the forty-year-old version was. Ne- it's a good poster, I guess. It was just so simple. That, it's like a classroom simple. photo from grade school. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. I actually, kind of loved it. Yeah. So for all things Cage Club, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews for this movie. You can check out past podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Everything Nicholas Cage and Cage Club at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And that's Zach Dazan, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Mm-hmm.